Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Remember those words by Peter in John chapter 13? As uh, Jesus was girding a towel and going uh, about this process of washing his disciples' feet, uh, Peter, Peter uh, remonstrated. He said, no, Lord, don't, don't wash my feet. You're not going to wash my feet. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there in John chapter 13. And this is an interesting story because it, it is a, it's a story that Jesus said was a pattern that we were to remember and to follow. In John chapter 13, it says that uh, Jesus rised, uh, rises from supper and laid aside his garments, his outer garments, and took a towel and girded himself and poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And when he came, verse 6, John chapter 13, verse 6, when he came to Peter, Peter said unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus said, What I do you know not now, but you will know after, hereafter. Peter said, Thou shalt never wash my feet. I mean, I can sort of understand where Peter was coming from, can't you? Peter had a great estimation of the Master. He respected Jesus very much. He, he's the one that confessed that Jesus was the, the Messiah, the sent of God. Jesus was the, the promised Redeemer, and Peter was not about to allow Jesus to do a servant's job, to do a menial task for him to wash his feet. And yet Jesus responds with these simple words, If I wash thee not... Thou hast no part with me. Wow. Jesus is saying, Peter, this isn't about my pride or your pride. This is about something much deeper. This is about our relationship, and this is about salvation. Now, as Jesus says this, Peter says, look, if that's the case... If it's about us, if it's about our relationship, he says in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash me all. Wash everything. And Peter, uh, Jesus answers Peter with these simple words. He that is washed needs not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. And these words he spoke concerning the one that was to betray him. Jesus, what do you mean? All we need to wash is our feet, and then we're completely clean? Now, how many mothers know that that's not literally physically true, right? Oh, as a kid, as a boy, you know, when we had to take baths, I wish we could have just gotten away with washing our feet. You know, boys are just as happy dirty as they are clean. You ever notice that? We're just as happy going to bed after romping in the woods without a bath as with a bath. And uh, mothers have something to say about that, though. And they want us to be washed completely from head to toe. Jesus says, if you just wash your feet, it's fine. It's completely clean. What is he talking about? Well, perhaps Jesus was expecting Peter to know something about what he was talking about. Because Peter, being a Jew, would be familiar with what we might call ritual cleansings. Now, ritual cleansings were not intended to literally cleanse a person from head to toe. They were designed to be, just as 
many things in the sanctuary were designed to be. They were designed to be sort of types or representations of a deeper cleansing. You understand what I'm saying? And in the sanctuary service, there were a number of different cleansings. We won't take the time to go into all of them now. We're going to be looking just pretty much at how the priests use the, the laver as cleansing. But there were many different cleansings that took place with the water from the laver. Um, if there were different types of uncleanliness according to the sanitary laws of the uh, Israelites as they were making their journey through the wilderness. There were, there, after their uh, purification periods, they were to come to the temple and they would be cleansed with the water from the labor. Not head to toe, of course, but just enough to symbolically represent the cleansing that they were to have spiritually. And so we're going to be looking at that here this evening. We're going to be looking at the, uh, the subject, Dirty Feet Welcomed. And I think it's a fascinating story because of what we find here with Peter. Peter and his dirty feet. And of course, Jesus washed those feet as Peter surrendered to his Savior. That surrender is what allowed his heart to continue in a relationship with Jesus. But let's continue on here as we look at the story of the laver. Now, the laver in the, in, the, um, in the sanctuary was placed between the altar and the tabernacle. And there are a number of times at which the priests were required to wash in the laver. And uh, the reason was because the tabernacle particularly was holy. And it was to be the place where God's presence was dwelling. The glory of God hallowed the sanctuary, the tabernacle. And for this reason, the priests were never to enter the place sanctified by God's presence with shoes upon their feet. That was one of the instructions that they were given. They were to take their shoes off. But not only their shoes, because particles of dust might stick to their feet and it would desecrate the holy place. Therefore, the priests were required to leave their shoes at the door of the tabernacle before entering the sanctuary, and in the court beside the door of the tabernacle, between the altar and the tabernacle, and some scholars would say it was a little farther south of the midline um, of the tabernacle, uh, right, of the tabernacle, there was this brazen laver where the priests washed their hands and their feet before entering that all purity might be removed. Of course, this was symbolic. You understand, everything that was happening in the sanctuary was symbolic. Everything was pointing forward to a spiritual reality. So there's the literal ceremonies they would go about, but there was the literal um, uh, or spiritual meaning that those ceremonies would point forward to. And so all who officiated in the, in the sanctuary were required of God to make special preparation before entering the place where His holiness dwelt. Now, there are many different artists' conceptions of labors, but I want us to just look at a couple of interesting labor facts. Do you all have a, a handout here this evening? Everyone get one? All right. Um, you can follow along as we, as we look at this. The Hebrew word um, translated uh, washbowl is translated also, besides being translated labor, is also translated washbowl. In 1 Kings chapter 7, it's translated cooking pot in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 14, and fire pot in Zechariah 12 and verse 6. And you might think, well, why in the world would one word in the Hebrew be translated for so many different things? We'll talk about that in just a minute. 
But the, uh, basically, the laver was made out of metal. You remember what the altar of sacrifice we talked about last night was made out of? It was made out of bronze. That was the metal. What else? It was the acacia wood, right? And it was overlaid with the metal. In this case, it was, it was solid metal that the, the laver was made out of, and it was actually made from the mirrors, the polished copper or brass mirrors the women had as they were journeying across the wilderness. They actually donated their mirrors for the materials to make the laver. That's recorded in the book of Exodus. And so it wasn't something that was melted down, but rather that was pounded out. And as such, a solid metal bowl could be used for many different purposes. It could be used for a cooking pot or a fire pot or a wash bowl, the laver in the Hebrew. And um, if we look at this word, it's, it's, um, it's probably derived from the root meaning of a Hebrew word to dig or bore or to make round with a hammer. Do you understand, have any of you ever seen metal work being done? They take a piece of metal and you try to make it into a bowl. How are you going to do it? It's sort of from the inside out, isn't it? You're going to pound it out. It's, it's like drilling with a hammer in a way. And as you keep pounding and flattening and pounding and flattening, you, you make that into a round concave surf, surface, which eventually can be connected or will stay connected as a, as a bowl, as a dish. And that's how the laver would be milk, made. That's how a fire pot would be made in ancient times, or in some cases, a cooking pot as well. And so this is why this is called a laver, because that's the way it's made. It's, it's a basin that's made by pounding and, um, it, or digging or drilling, whatever you want to call that, that um, word. It could, be used, it could be used in different ways. Now, on, the same word is used, or a similar word, the same root is used by David the psalmist, when he predicted Christ's death in Psalm 22 and verse 16. He used that word, they pierced. And interestingly enough, the the, the word that David chose to use was the same root as the word to make a laver, that boring or digging or, or pounding out. It's as if he's saying they pierced or they, they, they created a source, a laver, of cleansing through the very feet of Jesus. What came out of Jesus' feet as they pierced him? His blood, right? And uh, David is using this prophetic term that is similar to the word used for labor. They, they pierced or digged or hammered or bored my hands and my feet. And this is denoting or pointing forward to Jesus' death on the cross. But back to the labor, labor we notice that it is in the sanctuary. It's made from the looking glasses of the women. And the priests, they did not actually bathe in the laver. It's not as though they would come to the laver and they would, you know, dip their hands or dip their feet. No, there were ladles. And this artist's conception of it, you see the ladles there. There were ladles that the priests would use. They would take it off, the, uh, off of its holders and they would, they would uh, dip the water out of the laver and then they would use it to rinse their feet, to rinse their hands before they went about the duties of the sanctuary. And um, this, is, this is very interesting because the water in the laver was not just ordinary water. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Let's read how the, the laver is to be used in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 25. And actually, you know, that text is wrong. Um, that's my mistake in making that slide. It's actually going to be Exodus chapter 
30, I believe. Um, so if you're taking notes, I don't want you to get confused here. That's, a, that's talking still about altars in Exodus 20. In Exodus chapter 30, and uh, let's look at verse 18. Exodus chapter 30 and verse 18. It says, Thou shalt make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass. It was to have sort of like a, a pedestal. He calls it a foot here in the King James. Um, in, in, in the Septuagint, it's actually called a, a, a basin. The, the foot is called the basin, sort of like a, a, a saucer, you might say, that also contained water. And... Uh, and it says, Put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the congregation, the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water, that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord. So here, two instances that the priests were supposed to be uh, washing their uh, themselves before they ministered, one before they entered the tabernacle of the congregation. So if they were to go to the, throughout the, the ceremonies, let's say, of the sanctuary, let's assume that I'm Jephthah and I bring a lamb into the sanctuary to be offered as a sacrifice, and we talked about this some last night. We're going to have a ceremony that takes place just north of the laver, actually, where the sinner would place his hand on the head of the lamb and confess his sin. The confession was not made to the priest. It was made, it was made on the head of the lamb in symbol transferring the guilt from the sinner to the innocent sacrifice, right? And then that uh, sinner, I, the sinner, would with my own hand slice the neck of that lamb and allow that blood to be pumped out that would be caught by the priest in a basin. And some of that sacrifice would then be taken to the altar of burnt offering. Some of it would be taken to the Levites. They ate it. They themselves became sin bearers, just like we saw last evening. Jesus became sin for us. As our high priest, he bore our sins. And uh, th by ingesting that lamb, the priests were representing that they were bearing the sins of the people. And on the Day of Atonement, which we're going to look at later in the week, the priest was to be cleansed of that burden of sin bearing. But we'll get to that. Um, so the priest would take that blood and he would take uh, that lamb and he would put it partly on the altar. And then he would, then from the altar, he would be going into the holy place where he would sprinkle it before the veil and put it on the horns of the altar there, the altar of incense. So here you have the priest going from the, from the place of, of slaughter, you might say, up to the altar. Before he went there, what did he have to do? He had to wash. And after going to the altar, he would be taking that blood into the temple, into the tabernacle itself, into the holy place. And what did he have to do before he went there? He had to wash. There was this constant washing that was going on as part of the ritual, part of the daily sacrifices that the priest was involved in. And it was a, it was a constant, ongoing thing. Um, when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. And um, this, is, this is part of the the counsel that they were given, that um, 
that they were to do as they, as they went about their ministration. That's Exodus chapter 30 and verse 20 that um, that text should read. So two instances, before they approached the altar and before they entered the tabernacle. In the, in the, um, in the Hebrew commentaries, you might say, on the, on the Old Testament scriptures, we read the following. And this isn't the book of Tamid, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. It's not a part of the Bible. It's just we can learn how the ancient Hebrews interpreted the Bible through their notes that they would take in the Mishnah and so forth. And it says, Take heed that thou touch not this vessel, the censer, which they would use in the holy place, before thou hast sanctified thy hands and feet in the Labor. And so this, this corresponds and this agrees with what God told Moses and uh, instructed the priests in Exodus chapter 30. They were to wash their hands and their feet in the laver before they would go ministering in the holy place of the sanctuary. Now, where would this water in the wilderness have come from? Very interesting. As we see the children of Israel, not everywhere, of course, they went in the wilderness where they provided with water from a rock, but at times they were, right? And what was that rock symbolizing, Paul tells us in the New Testament? It was symbolizing Jesus. What about the water coming out of the rock? Jesus himself says, I'm the water of life, right? And so this water is symbolizing Jesus. There's not, a, there's not something else that we can be cleansed by besides Jesus. Jesus was the water, represented by the water, in that laver. And in the, in the wilderness tabernacle, oftentimes that laver was provided or, or filled with water from the very rock which represented Jesus. In Jesus' time, there was a special source for the laver in the temple. This would have been Herod's temple, of course, um, some well, over a thousand years later, and um, Herod's temple there in Jerusalem was provided by water, where we have records to indicate. It came from the Pool of Shiloh, or Pool of Siloam, and you're, we're familiar with that mainly because of the story in the New Testament of the healing of the paralytic, remember, as Jesus went by the Pool of Siloam. But the very word uh, of, the very name of that pool has some interesting meaning for us. Siloam means the scent of God, and Shiloh means peace. And so both of them can, can be seen, again, to be representing Jesus, the water of life, right? And that's the pool from which the laver in the temple, in Herod's temple, would have been filled in Jesus' time. So the laver is a, is a vessel holding the water that is an instrument of cleansing, and so we can understand this to be pointing us in our minds towards Jesus. Now, it's interesting as we look at the sanctuary at large, as we look at the, as we look at the different ceremonies that were uh, going on, we notice there was a number of ways by which there was cleansing or at least a, um, we might say, a, yeah, a cleansing, a washing or a, a taking care of sin. We have, of course, over here just to the north of the altar, over here is where the, the lambs would be slain, and um, we see blood there in the courtyard, don't we? And blood was a symbol of the life of the lamb. It was also a symbol of how that sin would be carried away from the sinner and taken to the sanctuary. We also see the fire there in the, in the, sanctuary, in the, in the altar of sacrifice, and this also is a means of cleansing 
or of complete burning. Last night as we were talking about the altar, we were noticing that in the New Testament, we are encouraged to make ourselves as living sacrifices, to be completely offered up to God. Um, Not, of course, in any literal way, but in a spiritual sense of surrender. And then you have the third component of cleansing is the, the water, the labor, these three modalities, you might say, of dealing with sin that were in the courtyard. There's also a triad in the holy place, and we are going to get into that tomorrow night. We're going to try to look at all three, pretty much, tomorrow night, as we look at the, the light, the bread, and the incense, um, three additional uh, instruments that are very figurative and symbolic and meaningful for the Christian experience. And we're going to see how Jesus is represented in all of those. But as we move on, we come to the New Testament, and we notice in John chapter 3 the story of Nicodemus. Now, I want us to see there some of the sanctuary language that is used. Too often, or I should say many times, it's just natural since we're not really, we're not Jews that grew up in the culture of the temple or the sanctuary, right? And these ceremonies and sacrifices. So when we read our Bibles, often as we read the New Testament, we don't, we don't catch the things that are being said that a Jew would have said, aha, I see what you're talking about. I understand what you mean by that. And so we're going to just look at this well-known passage here containing the best-known verse in the whole Bible, John 3 and verse 16, right? The discussion with Nicodemus that Jesus had at night. It says in John chapter 3 and verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And Jesus answers and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is what you might call a non sequitur. You know, this is like, this is like if, if, if I were to say to you, you know, Cora, good evening, and Cora were to say to me, I went to New York once, you would be like, okay, what did that have to do with good evening, right? Um, this man called Nicodemus comes and he says to Jesus, we know that you're sent from God. We know that you're a teacher because nobody can do these things without God's help. And Jesus looks at him, and I can imagine there, there must have been, this is my imagination, okay, forgive me, because there's nothing inspired about it. But I can just sort of imagine there may have been a long pause as Jesus looked at him. And when Jesus, I suppose when Jesus looks at you, you sort of, feel that he's looking right through you, you know, that he knows everything about you. I don't know. This is, again, this is my sanctified or unsanctified imagination at work, whatever it may be. But G- Nicodemus says, we know that you're from God. No one can do these things unless they're from God. And Jesus looks at him and says, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is a bit taken back. Born again. Now, honestly, no matter how much you study the sanctuary, you don't find a lot of born-again language in the sanctuary. You know, there's no births involved in the sanctuary. And so you can sort of forgive Nicodemus for not knowing, you know, in, in the religious world that he was in, this born-again was not a very familiar concept or metaphor or, you know, type 
that Jesus was using. But Jesus continues. After Nicodemus asks, how is this possible? Can a man be born again after he's old? And so forth. Jesus answers in verse 5, John chapter 3, verse 5. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Aha! Now Jesus is starting to use language with which Nicodemus would be familiar. Because in Nicodemus' world, the Jewish world, and the religion that he was most familiar with, water as a form of washing was well understood, right? In the laver, the priests were to wash. And as we know, the priests had come to the point where they, had, they were doing these things and fulfilling these ceremonies just sort of by rote, just as if they had merit in themselves. There was a constant round of slaughtering and sacrifices and washing, and they went through all these ceremonies, but they had forgotten their meaning. They weren't doing it through faith. It was just sort of a legalistic works trip that they were on. If we do this, check, 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 right? And they had all kinds of additional rules and regulations about how they should do it and when they should do it and the way they should do it. And, and it was all a matter of, of arbitrary works legalism, right? And somehow, as Jesus is speaking, this washing or being born again of water, Nicodemus is starting to recognize, you know what? This, this washing of water, it's not just a matter of dipping a hand or dipping a foot. It's supposed to be a regenerating experience, an entirely remaking of the person, not just something that's superficial, not just something that's external, not just something that's dipping a hand or dipping a foot or spraying a little bit here, sprinkling a little bit there, but an entire renewal. And Jesus is giving fresh meaning to the worn out or abused out ceremonies which the priests have been undertaking and, and take carrying out for so long. Jesus says... Notice, after he explains this, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it lists, and you, cannot, and you hear the sound thereof, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it's going. So it's everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says in verse 9, How can these things be? And then Jesus gives me another clue, I think, that he is trying to illuminate what Nicodemus should have known from his religion. And he says in verse 10, Are you a master of Israel? And you don't know these things? Huh. Do you realize what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus? I shouldn't have to tell you about being born again. Usually when I, as a Christian, a New Testament Christian, when I, 2,000 years later, I read this, I read it as if Jesus is teaching a new truth that sort of superseded the truths of the Old Testament. Right? Because it's salvation through Jesus. But what Jesus says to Nicodemus, are you a master in Israel? You don't know these things? Nicodemus, if you studied the real meaning 
of the washing of water, you would know what I'm talking about. Isn't that amazing? Nicodemus, are you a teacher, a master in Israel? And Nicodemus was. Nicodemus was a very scholarly, devout man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men, the most educated and intelligent of all the nation of Israel. In order to, in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, one must have committed to memory the entire code of Jewish law by memory, front to back. And they had a lot of them memorized. Not only that, there's rules in the Sanhedrin, and this is, we're extrapolating a little bit about what type of a person would have been in the Sanhedrin from some of the rules we find and some of the, some of the evidence we find of how the Sanhedrin operated. The Sanhedrin was sort of like the local court that was still allowed to operate even under the Roman rule. And uh, so they, they were able to deal with matters of Jewish law. If someone was to be accused of heresy or of some, some law that the Romans didn't care about, some Jewish matter, they would be brought before the Sanhedrin. Now remember, the, the Jews were already scattered all over the world, the diaspora, and they spoke many different languages. And so when someone would come to the Sanhedrin, this is just from Josephus and other historians, we know this, they would come to the Sanhedrin and they would be tried and it was, it was the code of law for the Sanhedrin that they could not question them in anything other than their mother language, the language that the, the defendant was most familiar with. That was the rule. The Sanhedrin had to question them, and they had to give their testimony in that language. Now, there were quite a few languages spoken, but within the Sanhedrin, okay, one, one step further. It was against the code of the Sanhedrin to hire an outside translator to translate for the questionings or the testimony. Only a member of the Sanhedrin could translate during the process of a trial. And not only that, that would mean that there had to be at least one person in the Sanhedrin, 70 men, who spoke any language or every language where the Jews were scattered. Not only that, it could not just be one person translating. There had to be at least two members of the Sanhedrin that spoke the language of the defendant, his mother tongue, and could so there was not one person that could, you know, change the translation or whatever. There was at least two people from within their own group that knew the law and that knew the language. So this, what this tells us is these men were very well educated. They were bright, intelligent men who had studied and knew much besides the Hebrew laws, they also knew many languages. It's no surprise to us then in 1 Corinthians when Paul tells the Corinthians, I speak in more tongues than you all. He quite literally, and we know from his travels, he quite literally could speak in many, many different languages. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, this would have been a, a classical quality or qualification for being a part of that esteemed group of men. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, are you not a master in Israel and you don't know these things? Uh, verily, verily, I say unto you, and he goes on and he, he explains, he explains not only the, um, 
the, uh, the, this washing of water, but he explains also in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's explaining to Nicodemus, listen, Nicodemus, there was nothing, there was nothing actually effectual in the brass serpent itself that could heal the Israelites. It was a symbol of the Son of Man being lifted up talking about his crucifixion on the cross, right? And Nicodemus' mind is now whizzing. It's whirring as he's going through all of these different symbols of the sanctuary, symbols of the Old Testament by which God tried to point forward to Jesus. And it's starting to, it's starting to take on a totally different shape and a totally different texture than anything he's ever seen before. He's amazed as he begins to see what Jesus is teaching. And then he says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, this is not our topic for tonight, so I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it, but we cannot pass by the meaning of the labor without noting what Jesus was trying to teach here. When he says a man is to be born again of water and of the Spirit, he's talking about a complete renewal, a complete regeneration, and that's symbolized in the New Testament experience through the experience of baptism. That's what I believe Jesus was talking about. Now, baptism by itself doesn't save you. That's why he says it's not only water, but it's the Spirit, right? Now, let's notice a few verses. Just take your Bibles really quickly, and I want you to just see what the New Testament teaches about this experience, this New Testament experience of baptism. Start, we'll start with the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, and we're going to just look at, we're just going to look at four verses here very quickly in two gospels and two in, from the book of Acts. Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to see how the baptism began to be preached by John the Baptist. John, uh, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6, um, well, we'll read verse 5 for content context. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, doing what? Confessing their sins. Now, last night we were talking about the altar, and that's where confession takes place, right? There's a, there's a confession that is connected with baptism, and uh, that's a part of that conversion experience. Mark chapter 1 and verse 5. Let's look in Mark chapter 1, the next gospel. Mark chapter 1 and verse 5. This is again uh, recording what is happening with John the Baptist. It says, And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and they were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now notice with me, what I want you to see is that baptism is, and this is true baptism, this is not even baptism after Jesus' Form, you might say. This is before Jesus came. This is John the Baptist's baptism, but it, it's hand-in-hand hand with confession. You see that? And so we can, we can already say, I think, safely say, that baptism by itself is not efficacious. It's simply an external representation of what's happening in the heart, right? There's confession that goes along with baptism. And, of course, we studied that in more detail last night. Uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 this is now the baptism after Jesus. Jesus taught his disciples to baptize, although he didn't baptize himself. Um, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Um, Jesus' um, disciples are teaching at the temple after his ascension. And Peter says, Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the what? For the remission or the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the what? Holy Ghost. Now, remember what Jesus said, you must be born again of what? Water and of the Spirit, right? And that's what the New Testament church is teaching. Repent and be baptized. Don't just go and be baptized. It's not just a matter of a formality or a ceremony or, you know, there's nothing virtuous in the water of a baptistry. But it's a part of symbolizing what's happening in the heart. Repentance, confession, and a death to the old way of life, a resurrection to the new way of life. We could read about that in Romans chapter 6, we won't take the time to go there, but you can study it on your own if you like. He explains, Paul explains in great detail the meaning of baptism, burial and resurrection. Um, we'll look at one more verse on this and then we'll move on. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. Once again, I want you to see the cleansing effect or the, cleanse, the, the relationship, I should say, between baptism and cleansing in the New Testament. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. And why tarriest thou? Arise and what? Be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So what we see here is baptism is connected with repentance, with confession, with the washing away and the forgiveness of sins, and with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Very clear here that we see, right? And that's, uh, that's what we find from the teaching of Jesus to Nicodemus and also from the teaching of Paul. Now let's look at the other ways that the New Testament might refer to the labor, and the labor experience. I want you to, I want us to look at a couple of, of verses here that we can, we can look at. And uh, it's very interesting that Paul in these verses uses the same word that is used in the Old Testament for labor. Now you understand the Old Testament was written in what language? Hebrew or Aramaic. And um, in Jesus' day, what language was commonly spoken? Greek. So while, while I'm sure many of the Jews understood quite a bit of Hebrew, and they may even been fluent in Hebrew, the language of the people, the common language around them was Greek. And many of them read their Bibles, believe it or not, their Bibles consisted of what? The Old Testament, right? The books of Moses, the laws is referred to, and the books of the prophets. Um, besides, they um, had the books of history as well. But they would read the Old Testament, many of them read it not in Hebrew, but read it in Greek. We call it the Septuagint. They were familiar with their reading in the language that was spoken in, the day, in their day around them, Greek. And so they would read. Now, how do we know that? We know it because often when they quoted, they quoted verbatim, even Jesus quoted verbatim from the Septuagint, not from what you might say would be a, a literal on-the-fly translation of the Hebrew. Does that make sense? It's, it, it'd be rather unlikely for a person to quote verbatim unless they had been reading that translation of it. That's at least what we would assume. Now, when Paul writes about the washing in the New Testament, two verses, we're going to look at them there now. Titus chapter 
3. What, when Paul writes this verse, he does not use a common Greek word or the most common Greek word just talking about washing or to wash, but he actually uses the same word, catch this, the same word that was used in the Septuagint to describe the laver, and that's this word lutron. And so in Titus chapter 3, let's look there, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, we might as well read verse 3 for, the, for context, it says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving different lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now here, this is a beautiful passage by the way, isn't it? It wasn't anything we did to save us from our sins. It's, it's by His mercy, right? It's His by His grace. That's what Paul is saying here. But he says, by the washing, and that word translated washing in your English Bible, Paul uses the word lutron. And it, I guess there's a, I'm not an English expert, but would that be a gerund washing, a sort of a ing used as a noun? Is that right? Um, I think that's a gerund. Paul uses lutron, which is a noun. And it literally means laver or basin. And it's the same noun used in Exodus chapter 30 in the Septuagint when it says Moses was instructed to make a lutron. Okay? Same, same, same root word is used in both passages. And Paul uses this word. And he says, I've, um, he saved us by the washing, by the lutron, by the basin of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. He had to be. There's only two times in the New Testament this word lutron is used, and Paul uses them both times, and we're going to look at both places. Paul had to have known that he was pointing his hearers, his readers, back to the true meaning of the labor of the Old Testament. It's the washing of His grace, of His blood, by which God saves us. It's the labor of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Once again, you have the water and you have the Spirit, right? By which we are saved. And in the Old Testament, just as an aside, as the, you might ask the question, where was the, where was the Spirit at the labor? Um, the Spirit is commonly understood in the Old Testament to be represented by oil, right? And the labor was to be dedicated with blood and oil. Very interesting, just just sort of as an aside in passing. So here you have Jesus um, talking about being born again of water and the Spirit, and you have Paul talking about the laver or the basin of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. The second passage which he uses this is in Ephesians. And in Ephesians, it's particularly talking about the, or the context is a, a, a wedding feast. And so... I don't know if Paul was specifically in Titus chapter 3 talking about baptism. He was trying to refer our minds to baptism. But we could at least see that he's point, trying to point us to the, the grace of Jesus and the washing from sin that he, he can bring, right? And in Ephesians chapter 5, he seems to be talking about something that would take place 
Perhaps, perhaps he's referring just to the sanctuary as well. Some scholars believe that he's talking to the ceremonial washing that a bride would have before she went to her marriage feast. In the Hebrew culture, she would bathe before she went to the bridegroom's house for the festivities to begin. And um, here, he, here Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, we'll begin, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now, that word washing there in verse 26, once again, it's talking about, it, it, it's just the word lutron. It's, the, it's a noun, okay? It's, he literally is saying that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing, with the laver of water by the what? By the word. Now, some might say, well, the word? What are you talking about, Paul? It's not as though you can just read the Bible and then be cleansed from sin, right? That would be sort of a human works type of uh, understanding of salvation. But let's remember, Jesus is the living Word of God, right? It's not just a matter of reading the Word, no. It's talking about, as Jesus would say, if, you, if you'll eat my flesh and drink my blood, it's about, it's about the Word becoming a part of our lives, right? It's as we study the Bible and allow Him to make the, us like Him. We're taking in Jesus, right? The more we study the Word, led by His Spirit, there you have it again, the washing of water by the Word, together with the Spirit to guide our minds, to apply the Word to our hearts, to lead us into all truth. It's as we surrender ourselves to the Word of God that we are cleansed. Um, keep that thought and look back in John chapter 15. Notice what Jesus says, John chapter 15, and he's speaking to his disciples here, and he says essentially the same thing that Paul just said in Ephesians 5 and verse 26. John chapter 15 and verse 3, what does he say? Now you are, what does he say? Clean, and the word there is catharsis, or catharsis, through the word which I have spoken unto you. What is the instrument of cleansing, Jesus says? You are clean through the word. And, and, and it's the same exact thought that Paul says. You almost think Paul's quoting Jesus in John 15, 3, when he says this, because in Ephesians 5 and verse 26, what, G, what Paul, Paul uses is the exact same two words. Um, well, I mean, Jesus doesn't use Lutron, obviously. Um, only Paul uses Lutron in the New Testament. But what Jesus said is, Now you are clean, catharsis, through the word which I have spoken unto you. And what Paul says in Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, the catharsis, once again, through the washing of water by the word. And so... I would propose to you that God wants us to find in the Old Testament labor, in the New Testament experience, the experience of going beyond the, the blood, which when we come to Christ and our sins are forgiven, our past is washed away, we call it justification, but to a constant cleansing by the washing of water of the Word. Just like the priests were to consistently, throughout their day, they were constantly 
dipping their feet, washing their feet, washing their hands before they did their ministry, we also need a constant cleansing by the washing of water of the Word. And um, it's one of the reasons why I, as a Christian, want to fill my mind with the Word of God, a constant experience in what Jesus has to say about my daily life. Um, Now you are clean through the Word which I have spoken unto you. Now I want to go now to the final representations in the Bible of the laver. Now this is very, very interesting. When we look at the Old Testament laver, as I mentioned, the, um, the Hebrew term there means sort of to be pounded, to be bored out, to be dug out. That was the laver described in the, in the, um, in the wilderness. But there was another laver that would be built, and that was built in the um, t- temple built by Solomon. If you have your Bibles... I want you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 4. 2 Chronicles chapter 4, and this is the story of the building of Solomon's temple. And um, it was not exactly the same. If you've seen the tour, I think they make some mention of the different temples. It wasn't exactly the same as the temple that was built in the wilderness. Same concepts were there, but um, there was a little bit of artist's... um, Liberties, I guess you might say, in the building of Solomon's temple. Everything was much grander in scale. It was not designed to be portable. It was actually designed to be very permanent. And um, the laver in this case was one of those things that was much, much grander than in the wilderness tabernacle. Second Chronicles chapter 4, and verse 1. It says, Moreover, he made an altar of brass, 20 cubits the length thereof, and 20 cubits, 30 feet, a huge altar, much bigger than the eight or ten foot altar, square altar that was in the wilderness. And verse 2, also he made a molten sea of ten cubits from brim to brim, round in compass, and five cubits the height thereof, and a line of thirty cubits did compass it around. And under it was a similitude of oxen, and holding it up, and so forth. Now, this is the labor of Solomon's temple, and what's it called? It's called a sea. And in fact, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Septuagint is very useful because we can pair the Old Testament words with the New Testament words, not that the Hebrew isn't meaningful as well. But in the, in the, uh, in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek word here for sea is simply thalassa, thalassa. That's the sea. Now turn with me in the New Testament all the way to the book of Revelation. I want you to see what John sees in the real temple, the real temple, which remember the the earthly temple was a pattern of things above, right? Talked about that the first night. Revelation chapter 4 now. And I want us to look at verse 5. This is around the throne of God, the very throne of God. And it says... 
And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, you remember, if we look at a, if we look at a model of the sanctuary, we talked about how the, the throne, particularly the throne of God, is spoken of as being on the sides of the north. That's where Lucifer wanted to exalt himself above, right? That's where the throne of God is. And this article of furniture, you heard about that in your two or two, this article of furniture had crown around it, a crown of, of gold symbolizing royalty. Um, we believe that the throne of God is represented in the earthly sanctuary on the north side of the, of the tabernacle. And this is what John the Revelator sees in the real sanctuary above. Very fascinating. He sees before the throne is a seven-branched candlestick. Revelation 4 and verse 5. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And he saw something else before the throne. Notice with me in verse 6. And before the throne there was a what? A sea of glass. The sala, the same word used in Second Chronicles chapter 4 in the Septuagint describing the laver is used now to be describing the sea of glass, which is also before the throne of God. And what is, what, you know, besides the candlestick, what is the closest um, article of furniture that you would see if you were looking into the holy place? It would be the laver right outside. So in some symbolic way, the earthly sanctuary we know was supposed to be a representation of what was really in heaven. Are we going to see a laver in heaven? Evidently not. We're going to see a whole sea, much bigger even than Solomon's sea. We're going to have a whole sea of glass there before the throne. But it gets even better. Because if we look on a few chapters further in Revelation chapter 15 and verses 2 and 3, John sees the sea of glass once again. And he says he saw it this way. I saw in Revelation 15 verse 2, I saw as it were the sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Here we find that before the throne of God, John sees the sea of glass. Right there in the very throne room of God. But that sea of glass is something else. There's something else standing on it. Who's standing on it? The ransomed, the redeemed, right? Those who have gotten the victory. They're standing on the sea of glass. Now, I would propose to you this evening that only holy things will stand there. Revelation 21, verse 27 says, But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes abomination or a lie, but only those things that are written in the Lamb's book of life. The amazing thing is, the amazing thing is, friends, that these feet, my feet, your feet, will one day stand on the sea of glass before the throne of God. They can. These feet can stand there. 
My feet can stand there. Your feet can stand there. Not because of anything that we can do to make them clean enough to be there. No, not at all. But they, because they'll be washed by Jesus' blood and cleansed by Jesus' Word and a great multitude from every nation and every walk of life will, as Jesus said in, in Revelation 3 and verse 4, they shall walk with Me in white for they are worthy. How are they going to get there? How are these feet going to one day stand on the sea of glass? It's only because another pair of feet were pierced and became a place in a fountain of blood of cleansing for me. Because Jesus' feet had those nails, were pierced by those nails, my feet will one day be able to stand before the very throne of God on the sea of glass represented in the Old Testament sanctuary by the laver of water. Oh, what a wonderful Savior we have. What a wonderful promise that we have of being able to one day walk with Jesus in white. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what He's done. To be cleansed by the washing of His blood. To be cleansed by the washing of His Word. You know, lest you think that there's anything that even, even reading the Word of God should have some merit for us. I want us to just fa- close with one text, a well-known passage in 1 John chapter 1, but we're going to read verse 7 onward. We know verse 9. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 says this, For if we walk in the light as He is in the light... We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us, kafarsi, from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know about you, friends. But I want these feet to one day stand on that sea of glass. And if they're they're going to be there, then I'm going to have to be experiencing the labor here. The washing of water by the Word. The washing of water by His blood which cleanses us from all sin. Is that your desire too? You want to be there? Stand on that sea? And see that sanctuary, that courtroom, that throne room that was just depicted in a scale, model, pattern, typified what way in the sanctuary? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the water which we find, the fountain that was opened up at the cross of Christ for cleansing. Thank you for his blood, symbolized by that water and that labor. Thank you for his word, which as we, as, we, as we study it, as we partake of it, as we allow it to change us, not just intellectually understand it, but actually to follow it, to obey it. We're, we're, we're eating your flesh and drinking your blood. We're becoming more like you, and you're becoming part of us. Lord, I just pray, Father that we might confess our sins and not hide them, but that we might let that word be the mirror, the looking glass, just like those looking glasses became the laver, that we'll allow that word to show us our need of you, 
that will confess our sins and find cleansing. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for allowing his feet to be pierced, to be pounded into a basin for us. Thank you for shedding his blood. We want to one day walk with you in white, and we want these feet of ours to stand on the sea of glass. We thank you that this is possible through him, through him alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.